Well, sisters and brothers, it is good to be here with you this, uh, this beautiful day, and what a beautiful day it is. I hope and pray that you all have had a good week, and it was, of course, great, as uh, Pastor Scott said, to be able to see all of uh, our sunshine singers and what a blessing uh, they are. You know, before we dive into the passage today, I want to say a couple of things, um, because uh, when we are a couple of weeks ago, much time has progressed from that conversation about um, Saul and Jonathan and David uh, and where we're going to be today, which is uh, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. I have, uh, I kind of wished this week that I would have uh, done more in between this time. This is kind of the in-between time from when he's anointed uh, and when he becomes king. But um, as I said at the 8 o'clock, uh, the next time we go through David, um, uh, we will do that. Uh, and I'll make sure to touch on that. So that'll be, uh, I think I have it plotted out for 2037. So it's going to be fantastic. Look forward to seeing you guys there then. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit about what's been happening. Uh, again, David's been on the run for much of this time. Saul trying to kill him. And so he's on the run. He's in the wilderness. David actually has two different opportunities to kill uh, Saul, and he decides not to take those opportunities. Um, but then we kind of get towards the end there where Saul and Jonathan both are killed, and David mourns that. Uh, but then David also finally becomes king. So probably about 10, 10 or 12 years later after being anointed, he finally becomes king. And after, after he becomes king, he wants, to, he wants a, a capital city. And so he takes over Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to be the capital city. Um, but then David uh, realizes he's missing something. And that thing that he's missing is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant served for the Israelites as this real clear sign of the presence of God. It, was, it helped to direct their worship. And uh, it, within the Ark, as you may or may not know, were three things. The, the Ten Commandments, uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, manna, a jar of manna, which was the food that they received while they were wandering in the wilderness, and then the rod of Aaron. And these were all these clear reminders to them of how God had been with them in the past, which means that God was uh, with them in the present and, and gave them faith that God would continue to be with them in the future. So David wants the ark, but the ark has also been on quite the circuitous journey uh, over the last couple of decades. Uh, the, the Israel had uh, tried to kind of use it almost as a way of ensuring victory over the Philistines. And in the midst of that, the Philistines stole the ark. The Israelites were defeated. Uh, but seven months later, things were not going well for the Philistines when they had the ark, so they gave it back. Uh, but this time, it went to the house of Abinadab, and, and Abinadab had two sons, uh, uh, Uzzah and, and Ahio, uh, and that's where it's been now for a couple of decades, and David says it is time to return the ark, or to take the ark and put it here in Jerusalem, which brings us then to our passage this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 23. Let's hear this story now. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with the linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Micah, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it, in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael... The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes, but by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, at times when we read scripture, we are left out of a sense of great joy and hope. And at other times, if we are so honest, we are left confused, concerned, so we pray, Lord, that you would work us with us and through us in the midst of whatever emotion it is that we may bring this morning. And we pray, God, that in the midst of this, 
that we would recognize you for who you are. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as I was saying before I read the scripture, David believes it is important to bring the ark that represents the presence of God into Jerusalem. Now there are some who think that the only reason he's doing that is just to try to substantiate his kingdom. But, but it seems more likely that what David really wants is he, he, he wants Israel to know who their God is as Yahweh. Uh, my wife Megan was reading a book on Israel a couple weeks ago, and, and, and the author, Micah Goodman, uh, points out that, that, that the surrounding nations of Israel, that, that typically they saw the king as being divine, but Israel did not. And so one of the things that seems that's going on here is that David wants to make very clear that there is a distinction between who he is as king and who God is. And by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, it helps all of them, himself included, always remember that he is not God, that only God is God. But to do so, they are going to have quite the celebration. This is a celebratory procession. Hopefully you heard it. If not, I would just want you to, to picture it. There's a new cart, and on the new cart is the, is the Ark of the Covenant being led by, uh, by, by Ahio and, and, and Uzzah. And there are 30,000 men, we are told. Now, who knows how many people that is in all. You have 30,000 men at least, and they are there in order to have this long procession, and there is great excitement. We're told that there are, are instruments, right? There's a, a, what do we have? We have a tambourine. We've got a cymbal. We've got a harp. We've got a lyre. Uh, we're told that they, are, uh, that they are singing, that they are dancing. Did you hear what they said? Are you picturing this? That they are dancing with all of their might. Did any of you see, I think his name is Cash. Did you see him right up here? That is dancing with all your might. I, have, I thought about trying to do an impersonation. I'm not going to do it because I would totally pull something. But he was there, I mean, dancing with all of his might, right? This is what's going on. This is not a Presbyterian dance. This is dancing with all, you have to imagine it. It's a dancing with all your might. So you can just kind of feel and hear the excitement and the celebration and there they go and this is this incredibly exciting scene and they're just making their way up to Jerusalem. I mean everything is going swimmingly and then the oxen it seems for one reason or another maybe they were stumbling but the ark of the covenant began to wobble and Uzzah doing what almost any of us would be kind of naturally inclined to do sticks out his hand to try to steady it and all of a sudden, God smites him and he is dead. And I, and I picture it almost like this is kind of waves, right? Like an earthquake kind of waves where those people who were closest to him, all of a sudden they stop and they see what happened and they see Uzzah's lifeless body and then the next ring kind of stops because the people in front of them stopped and they don't know for sure why. They just know that for some reason the joy and excitement has stopped and then, and then the ring around them begins to stop and then around them and however long it takes for 30,000 men and others to finally stop and then all of a sudden sudden there is complete silence, shock, and awe. 
spend. It may not surprise you to know that preachers, at least most preachers, don't really enjoy preaching about stories like this. In fact, in the lectionary, the lectionary is kind of a group of assigned texts that helps preachers kind of go through the scriptures in about three years. It hits on most passages, but when it comes to this one, it conveniently skips from verse 5 to verse 12, which tells you something about them and about preachers. But of course, it says something about all of us. The truth is, this is a very perplexing passage, very concerning, very confusing, very uncomfortable, very it ruffles our sensibilities. We wonder, what in the world is wrong with God? How could he just zap someone dead for doing something that seems very natural? Uzzah was just trying to save the ark from tumbling to the ground. He was just trying to help. He was just trying to protect God. which is perhaps a clue into what was happening. Now, to be sure, as someone has said, passages like this will oftentimes end up leaving us with far more questions than we have answers. We want to think that the Bible is going to answer everything, every question we ever have. The truth is, when you begin to read it, there are oftentimes when you perhaps, it begins to ask even more questions than what you had earlier. But there are a couple of clues, it seems, that help us to understand, at least in part, what's happening in this story. One thing we know for sure is this. That the Ark of the Covenant should never have been on that cart. Moses in Exodus 25 makes very clear, and they knew their scripture. The Israelites knew this, made very clear. In fact, the Ark was made with, 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 um, with loops in it. Uh, that's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying in there. Where they could slide rings, where they could then slide the poles into the ark so that the Levite priests, and it needed to be them, could then lift it up and carry it in such a way. It should never have gone on the carts that oxen were carrying. Yes, it's more efficient. Yes, it's much more comfortable. Yes, it's much easier. It's all of those things. It's much more manageable, but it all fails to take into consideration at all all the absolute holiness and otherness of God. This was not just some box. This was the Ark of the Covenant, which was there in order to symbolize and to help them to understand the holiness and the complete otherness of God Almighty. This was not just a, hey, let's just throw this cart up or this box up on the cart and, and take us to Jerusalem. No, it was much more than that. What Eugene Peterson asserts is that God had clearly become something to be managed, not something to be in awe of. Something to be controlled, not something to be worshipped. Something to protect and watch over, not something who protects and watches over us. 
The uncomfortable thing about this particular story, the thing that is most uncomfortable is that in many ways it's geared towards those of us who have been following God for quite some time. Which is that it is far too easy for this God to begin to become incredibly comfortable. Uzzah had had this in his house, his living room, his closet, who knows, for 20 years. He'd seen it. He'd grown comfortable with it. It had become a box. And in so doing, he had begun to forget that it served as a representation of just how holy and other God actually is. Because the truth is, a God with whom we grow too comfortable is a God that we will inevitably begin to manage. And a God that we inevitably begin to manage is a God that we can control. And a God that we can control, make no mistake about it, is absolutely no God at all. Many years ago now, probably a couple decades ago now, um, I believe, I came across a quote by Annie Dillard that I've never forgotten because it always, in many ways, it made me very uncomfortable. And I think in many ways it speaks exactly to what we see going on in this story because what she believes is that the church has grown far too comfortable with God, so much so that it has no idea the power of God. No idea, lost the idea of the sense of the holiness of God, of what it means to worship. Here's what, here's what Annie says. She says this, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible to the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea. What sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Now that image that she creates should be somewhat jarring to us, but I have a feeling there are also many of us, and I find myself in the same boat at times, saying, oh, come on, Annie, quit being so melodramatic. It's not that big of a deal. We're just going to church. We're just, it's just worship. It's just God. Which, of course, is the very point. For many of us, what we do in church, what we do in worship, what we do when it comes to God has become so pedestrian, so comfortable that we have easily forgotten the earth-shattering 
power of the Almighty who created the world, the earth-shattering holiness of the one who created you and created me, the earth-shattering life of the one who destroyed death that all may have life. And we walk into a place with TNT and we act like all we need to do is just rest for an hour and then we can go on and get ready for the big day and the big bowl game this evening. Rarely do we come in thinking we are about to worship the living and holy God. When we lose sight of the holiness and other and the otherness of God, make no mistake about it, how we live life begins to change. Because what you begin to discover is that we become very comfortable. We celebrate a God who loves and is full of grace, and that is true, but we begin to conveniently set aside that this same God demands complete obedience and sacrifice. We are okay thanking God for the blessings that he has given us, but we begin to scoff when we are asked to generously give those blessings away. We watch what we want. We speak as we want. We live as we desire. And we are increasingly offended to think that God would ever ask us to change any of those things. Slowly, corporate worship begins to become something that we do only when it fits easily and comfortably into our schedules. We more and more easily begin to evoke the name or invoke the name of God into our politics. And we simply assume that surely God must believe as we do. And when we're really honest, if we can be so honest, we would prefer to change God than to change our worship of an elephant or a donkey. We almost subconsciously allow the world to start setting our priorities and then we sprinkle in just enough God to comfortably sleep at night and to live during the day with a well-managed God who gives us all the benefits with none of the costs. We defend God and we protect him from those we see as against him because our God has become so small and impotent that we think he needs our protection. And over time, as the holiness of God begins to wane as the otherness of the Almighty becomes fuzzy and gray, we grow more and more comfortable putting our hand out to steady the Almighty, forgetting that God does not need us, that we need God, forgetting that we are not the center, that God is. And once 
we have squeezed out all of the holiness and otherness of God. Everything gets turned on its axis and inevitably we become God. You see, I think a part of the reason why it makes us uncomfortable, this story, is that it should make us uncomfortable. Because a faith that becomes overly familiar and overly comfortable is a faith, make no mistake about it, that slowly begins to die. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees... They knew how to manage God. They had become very comfortable with God. They knew exactly what God wanted. They knew everything about God, and they were more than happy to throw that box onto whomever it was that was in front of them. And when Jesus begins to describe the Pharisees, do you remember this description? He says that they are white-washed tombs full of dead men's bones. lifeless body of Uzzah next to the Ark of the Covenant, a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. These images, quite honestly, should startle us because they are reminders of the danger of our forgetting the holiness of God. And by controlling and managing a comfortable God, we are actually disinviting that same God to ever speak into our lives, to challenge us, to make us new, or to make us alive. It is no small thing to forget the holiness of God. It is, in fact, the difference between life and death. There is a reason that we don't like to preach on this passage. David felt the fear. It is said as much that he was fearful of God. He was also angry. He was angry at God, and perhaps some suggest he was angry at himself, angry at himself for having grown so comfortable, angry at himself for not appreciating the holiness of God. But finally, he decides that it is time to bring the ark the rest of the way. But do you notice, we see it here, but we also see it in First Chronicles as it's describing what happened in this story. It changes. When they go back the next time, things change. There are poles that are being carried by priests. There is a sacrifice. Every six paces, there is a sacrifice. As David continues to help a journey from where it is to all the way to Jerusalem, there is clearly new respect for the holiness and the otherness of God. But not only that, though, what we should still be mindful of is that there is still a great abundance of passion. There is still a great abundance of excitement. There is still a great abundance of worship. They continue to dance. In fact, David dances so much that it appears his clothes almost fall off of him. We're not going to show a video of this. 
He was down to a linen ephod, we are told, which is not much. But David is worshiping in all vulnerability with complete abandonment before God. And Michael, his wife, and Saul's daughter watched. She watched him dance. She watched him worship. And she watched him with anger. And when David returned home, she let him have it. Now, I want to take a moment... There's a brief pause just to remind you, first of all, that while it is easy for us just to quickly criticize Michael, and we will discuss it, we need to be clear that Michael has not had the easiest of lives. She was with David, then she was married to somebody else, then she was ripped from that marriage to be married to David. As the narrator uh, seems to point out here uh, time and time again, three times we're told in this relatively short passage that when Michael is described, she is described not as the wife of David. She's described as the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul. In other words, it is likely that she still has some issues with the fact that either Saul is no longer alive, as of course she would, or that he's not the king My point is this, that when she comes to this worshiping scene, when she's watching David, she does so with an abundance of understandable baggage. And it likely shapes how she's able or not able to enter into worship. And so while David worships, Michael observes. While David envelops himself in praising God, Michael keeps her detached distance. While David is vulnerable, Michael is safe. And what we must begin to see is the corrosive effect of being near worship, but not actually worshiping. Of being near the praise of God, but remaining at a safe distance. At being near the presence of the Almighty, but staying safely and firmly aloof. As someone has said, to be present at the place of worship without actually worshiping is both common and incredibly dangerous. When we are at worship week after week after week... You keep a safe distance and observe rather than participate. Watch rather than worship. Stay safe rather than allowing oneself to be vulnerable. It is a gentle and easy slope toward becoming cynical and distanced from God. But there are, of course, many understandable reasons why we do this. Maybe like Michael, you've You've had hurt and pain in the past and it's just difficult to believe and to come in and worship. You don't feel like worshiping. Maybe it's because you've seen some of the power abuses within the church and to try to come in to a place that's clearly flawed and worship just feels, uh, feels, uh, feels disingenuous. It doesn't feel real. For others of you, perhaps, you feel at times like worship is just manipulative. They're just trying to make me feel things I don't feel and so we, we don't want to do it. For others, maybe you, you just, you don't like the way people are worshiping. Maybe someone's sitting and you think they're standing. Maybe they're standing and they think they should be sitting. Maybe their hair's too long. Maybe their hair's too short. I've not heard that, but you never know. There are lots of reasons. 
Whatever it is, it causes you to, to hinder your ability to worship. I know in my own life I have been guilty of this far more times than I care to admit. When I was growing up, I can remember this past week, actually, we were talking about it. Someone mentioned a particular song that in the Pentecostal church of which I was a part, when this song uh, began to be played, I mean, it began to get heated. People were excited. And the moment they began to hear it, everyone was standing up. Then you had a cymbal, or excuse me, not a cymbal, a tambourine. And a lot of times, you know, they had the strings on the tambourine. You've seen those? And they were just shaking them. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. And they were just shaking them. And people were beginning to dance. And from time to time, if it really got going, people would begin to run the aisles. I mean, this was some exciting stuff. And the worship leader who was up front, he'd be like, come on, let's go. Everybody stand up. And everybody was standing. Let's sing out. And everybody was singing out. Let's dance. And everybody was dancing. And it's like, man, you guys have no idea. Look at you. My goodness. I just need one or two Pentecostals up here every once in a while. And as they were just sitting there doing that, you should have seen me because I was doing what you're doing right now. And the more they told me to get up and stand, the deeper my hands got in my pockets. And the more they told me to dance, the more I slumped over in that pew. The more and more my face got angry and disgruntled. And I thought, I will show you, you cannot make me worship. To be clear, it was totally fine. For me not to dance, or even sing, or even stand. The point is not whether or not one should do that. The point is, I decided to focus so much on what I thought that they were doing wrong. That slowly, it didn't happen all at once, slowly my heart began to harden. I began to feel more and more like I was so much better than them. And I had a complete inability to hear from God. You see, I think one of the things Michael teaches us is that we all come here with baggage. We all come with different understandings of worship. We all come with different things that help us or hinder us from worship. But I think what she also it's helpful for us to see is that we have to be careful. I mean this. To not just come in here week after week with the lens of observation or critique. Because if it is too strong, it will keep you safe. There is no question about that. But you will never be changed. It will keep God so distant that you will never be vulnerable. But God will also never challenge you. If you come in here with eyes that are so full of criticism, I promise you, you will walk out feeling so much better about yourself. And you will end up looking so much more like the world that is around you. Because the bent of distance and observation and critique, it will inevitably lead to arrogance. I have seen it because I have felt it because I have done it. And that will almost always revolt, resort in a place of spiritual 
barrenness. We are all in our different places in this journey. Please hear me. Some of you may just be coming here today for the first time because you want to hear about God. Others of you may have been on this journey for a little bit, but you're still not sure what you've gotten yourselves into. Others of you may have been on this for a really long, long time. I understand all of us come from different places, and I want all of you to be here. But I also want to say this. Oftentimes, the only way to begin to understand God is to begin to actually participate in worship, which means we have to be willing at times to be risky and to be vulnerable Because it is that faithful act of worship that allows us to understand the holiness of God. This week I spent most of the time considering the challenge of this passage, figuring out how do I preach on this without them writing me out in poles or in an ox cart? What I also realize is this. For those who have ears to hear, there is an incredible invitation in this story. An invitation to remember that when you worship God as a holy God, it means this. Hear me. It means you no longer have to try and be God. You can be human. And there is a gift in that. It means you no longer have to pretend that you are perfect. You no longer have to pretend that you have it all together. You no longer have to pretend that your worth is based off of how successful or non-successful you are. You no longer have to pretend any of those things because what it means is who you are is a loved child of God. And when you worship God as being completely other and completely holy it gives you the freedom to be human and that is a gift it is an invitation this passage as Eugene Peterson says to not have to take care of God because God is going to take care of you We don't have to defend him. We don't have to fully explain him. We don't have to make him look as good as possible. I have good news for you. God can handle himself. He did it long before you got here. He will do it long after you are gone. God's got this. And it is an invitation to exchange all of the energy it takes to critique the way others worship. And it takes an enormous amount of energy. And you get to exchange that for the joy of entering in to unabashed and vulnerable worship of the living God. This kind of worship Worshiping this kind of holy God is an invitation to choose life rather than death. Fruitfulness rather than being barren. 
So let us worship sisters and brothers in Christ with all of our might. Give it a cash worship. Worship that living and holy God. That in so doing, we might become fully alive. For the glory of the holy and living God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.